welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hi, listeners of Fertility and Sterility on Air. This is one of the producers, Molly Cornfield, and in this two-part series of talks that were recorded live at ASRM in New Orleans in 2023, we will give you a peek at the science and the mission of ASRM. In part one, taking place over the next hour, we will review some of the cutting-edge research and developments presented at ASRM, including some of our selected prize papers. Enjoy! Hi all, it's Molly Cornfield again, and I have the pleasure to interview Dr. Jessica Chardine, and her abstract is entitled, A Nationwide Assessment of Permanent Contraception Trends in Relation to Changes in Abortion Laws. And this was one of the ASRM Prize papers, and she was actually awarded third place this morning. So congratulations, Jessica. Thank you for being here. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from. Yes, thank you so much, and thank you for having me on today to talk. Um, so my name is Jessica Chardine. I'm one of the Andrology Fellows at University of Utah, currently completing uh, my second year in the fellowship. My first year was a research year, and this year I'll be doing a clinical year before I go off to practice at University of Louisville. Great. And if you could summarize your abstract for us uh, and your major findings today. Yeah, so the main objective of our research was to look at trends that we were seeing in terms of rates of vasectomies and tubules pre- and post-obs. And we actually looked at this between July and December of 2021 to July and December of 2022 because we wanted to keep those months consistent so there wasn't any bias that was affecting our results. And what we saw was that post-obs, there was an increased rate of people who were less than 30 who were pursuing any, any form of permanent contraception. So whether that be vasectomies or tubules. Specifically for vasectomies, we saw that there was an increased rate of patients who were single who was pursu pursuing this method of uh, permanent contraception. And then when we looked at this data and separated by states, we saw that there was a consistent increase of vasectomies among all states, regardless of the legal climate. And then when we looked at tubules by states, we saw that there was an increased uh, rate of tubules that were also being performed. However, this higher increase rate was only seen when we looked at states that were illegal or where abortions were currently illegal. Wow, really compelling findings. Totally speculating. Do you think the people getting vasectomies and tubules, you know, the additional people, were ones who would have gotten around to it eventually and just hadn't done it and they're kind of, you know, worried because of these laws being passed? Or do you think people are being almost driven into having permanent contraception who otherwise might not have chosen that option because they're so scared in this post-ops world? I absolutely think that it's probably some combination of the two. So people who may have already been thinking about it and then had this little push with the change in, in laws and wanting to make sure that they didn't have an unintended pregnancy, especially if they were from a state where they were worried that maybe the laws could be changing or if they had an unintended pregnancy, they wouldn't be able to have an abortion. 
I think there's also people who were interested in future fertility, but they felt pushed that right now was not the right time. And they felt like there was no way that they would be able to pursue a pregnancy and that they needed to have something be done. I think there was also a lot of information out there that, you know, specifically in our field, we do a lot of vasectomies. So focusing on vasectomies that, well, you could get a vasectomy and then you could get it reversed later. So I think there was some misinformation going on around permanent contraception and people not understanding that they truly are intended to be permanent. Yeah, and I wish we had more long-acting reversible contraceptive options for people who make sperm. And that's one of the major limitations, I think, in in those people don't have great options. Uh, Barrier method or... or a vasectomy, but hopefully some of these clinical trials for male contraceptives coming down the pipeline will really help. Um, Okay, very cool. What do you see as the next step for this research? I think it's going to be really important to see how these trends continue in the future. And I also think it's going to be really important so that we know how to allocate resources to make sure that we can ensure reproductive rights for all people, you know, regardless of where they are. You know, as legal climates change, we want to make sure that all people have access, they have education, they can, you know, have uh, the ability to receive permanent contraception if they so choose. That's very exciting. I'd love to see if our rates of um, vasectomy reversals goes up in the future, too. Yes, uh, absolutely. Tub- uh, tubal reversals less common, but tubal reversals. Um, and then I know, you know, there's a very low but real risk of regret with these procedures. So um, even a survey study might be really interesting to look at, hey, are we seeing a rise in that risk and regret among these post-obs um, people ask, accessing this? So. Is there something that you found really interesting or exciting uh, or that surprised you about this research? Yeah, something that I thought was really interesting about this research was that, you know, we traditionally think that a lot of the onus and responsibility for permanent contraception or just having um, ideas about reproductive rights falls on people who have uteruses. And I think seeing this rise and this increase in vasectomies really shows that permanent contraception and reproductive rights is important for all people, regardless of whether or not they have a uterus. Absolutely. It's Molly Cornfield again. I'm here with uh, Dr. Kate Devine, and she has a special guest to introduce to us. Yes, and I'm here with Dr. Carl Hansen, and he's here to speak with us about his research and the research of his team around ultrasound-guided ovarian drilling for polycystic ovary syndrome. Hi, thanks very much. I appreciate the opportunity. It's a pleasure to talk about the trial. So the title of the work that I'm going to be presenting here at ASRM today is the Ultra Trials, Transvaginal Ultrasound-Guided Ovarian Ablation Using the May Health System in Women with PCOS that are Resistant to First-Line Oral Medications. So when we think about ovulation induction options for patients with PCOS that are resistant to first-line therapy, they're really quite limited. Certainly we can use gonadotropins for ovulation induction, but these involve many visits and have an increased risk of multiple gestation pregnancy. The other procedure that we can do is laparoscopic ovarian drilling, but this procedure has really fallen out of favor over the years for a variety of reasons. First, it is certainly an invasive procedure. And secondly, there's no devices that are specifically developed to deliver the correct amount of energy to complete the ablation process. The May Health device really addresses both of these issues. First, it uses transvaginal ultrasound guidance, and that's a procedure that all of us are familiar with from doing egg retrievals, and certainly I think that all of us would consider it to be less invasive. Secondly, it's also 
uh, a purpose-driven device where the correct amount of energy is delivered based on the volume of the ovary. So our trial was really to look at the effectiveness and safety of the May Health procedure. And we conducted a trial uh, in Europe and in the U.S. Uh, the, the trial overall, as of the time of uh, this abstract submission, included 25 women with PCOS, five in the U.S. and 20 in, in Europe. And participants all underwent the May Health ultrasound-guided uh, ovarian ablation procedure. And then we followed those patients uh, to look at ovulation rates and then ultimately pregnancy rates as well. So outcomes that we were interested in included uh, ovulation rates, but also the safety of the procedure. Uh, if we look at the results so far um, at the patients that have completed follow-up, if we look at the 25 participants, 20 in the EU and five in the US, that completed at least three months of follow-up, in 21 cases, ablation was successfully performed in both ovaries, and in four, only one ovary was ablated due to the protocol which required the ovary to be a certain size and it to be accessible by transvaginal ultrasound approach. Out of those 25 participants, 11 ovulated spontaneously over the first three months. And in our cohort here in the United States, three of these participants ovulated spontaneously and then two did after the addition of ADVAC therapy. So for patients that had not ovulated on their own over the first three months, they could reinitiate first-line therapy. If we look at the participants now who have completed 12 months of follow-up, which includes 14 from the EU and one from the US, six of these patients have either conceived spontaneously or with restarting first-line therapy. And in the US, we have two additional participants who have conceived but have not yet completed 12 months of follow-up. Through 30 days post-procedure, we've had 13 participants who experienced 24 adverse events, of which 19 were mild, two were moderate, including vaginal bleeding and pain, and one was considered to be severe, which was pain during the procedure. Two events were considered to be serious, but deemed unrelated to the study device. So our conclusions are that the novel May Health transvaginal ultrasound ovarian ablation system can be an effective method for restoring ovulation in women with PCOS that are resistant to first-line oral medications. However, we need larger multi-center trials in order to confirm these findings, and then also to look at the metabolic impact of the procedure, and then finally to determine whether these effects endure over time. If so, office-based transvaginal ultrasound-guided ovarian ablation with the May Health System may represent an important shift in the treatment paradigm for women that are resistant to oral medications that have PCOS and desire pregnancy. Wow, that's fascinating work. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Dr. Hansen. I have, I have a question about your inclusion criteria for this trial. So was it a necessity that study participants would have already failed oral ovulation induction agents prior to enrolling in the trial and undergoing ultrasound-guided ovarian ablation? Yes, that is correct for the, the pilot trial, which we're presenting here, and then for the multi-center trial that we are um, hoping to begin over the next few months. So they had to fail clomid or letrozole, but not necessarily both, recognizing that there's a variety of practice patterns around the world in terms of what medications are used. And they had to fail to ovulate in two cycles, and at least one of those had to be the highest recommended dose of that oral medication. You mentioned one of the patients had uh, poorly controlled pain during the procedure. What kind of anesthesia were you using during the ablation? So that varies depending on where the procedure is being done. So for example, um, in Europe, in many situations, they're using only conscious sedation, you know, so that may be fentanyl 
um, Versed, things of that nature. And some patients tolerate that really well. Uh, others um, may have a more pain with the procedure, much like with egg retrievals. Um, in the U.S., at least in our center, we use propofol, and so we didn't have anyone that had trouble with pain during the procedure. So that's going to vary depending on kind of the standard for your location. But we're, we're trying to emulate an egg retrieval as much as we can, recognizing that that is a setup that is already familiar uh, for most REI practices. Tell us a little bit about your experience performing this procedure. It's, it's obviously not something that most of... Um, the reproductive endocrinologists in our audience will have performed. Is it a difficult procedure to learn? Um, you know, how, how would you encapsulate the risks uh, based on the, the number that you've done to date? Well, um, it is a little more challenging than doing an egg retrieval, and there's the two reasons for that would be, one, the ovary is much larger post-stimulation, and also there are many fluid-filled po- uh, follicles uh, within the ovary, and so it's an easier procedure, I would say, than doing this procedure. Uh, but the technique is really very similar, though, and uh, I felt like I got the hang of it fairly quickly in terms of how to do it. But it is not exactly the same as doing an egg retrieval, but I think an experienced REI that's done many egg retrievals will be able to learn to do this quickly. And what is the mode of ablation? How does the device work? It's a, a radio frequency device that um, it basically creates energy and heat in the ovary. And so it's actually a lower heat than what you would achieve if you were doing this laparoscopically. And that's kind of part of the issue that the laparoscopic version of this procedure is not standardized. But we do calculations of ovarian volume before the procedure is done. And that influences the number of ablations that we perform within the ovary. And then during the procedure itself, an electrode is deployed that heats the tissue up uh, and then it's kept at the temperature for about one minute and then you move to a new location. So it's about one minute per follicle or location that you're per applying location. the electrofrequency. Mm-hmm. And so it does take a little longer than an egg retrieval as well um, because you're going from one spot to the next and you're staying there for a minute at a time. For the patients who didn't successfully ovulate after the procedure, uh, if they went on to need IVF, did they have lower response rates because of the prior ablation? I have not had any patients in the U.S. that have gone on to IVF at this point yet, waiting, waiting to be seen. But I, I think that that's unlikely to have a major difference. You know, these patients are, have high AMHs, have good ovarian reserve, and I think it would be unlikely to have a major impact on that. And I think that that's important that the procedure is standardized because certainly there are reports in the literature with laparoscopic ovarian drilling where ovarian failure had occurred because someone was too aggressive with the ablation. So one additional question is about um, the potential benefit that you referenced when you were giving your summary um, in terms of metabolic outcomes for these patients. Obviously, the fertility outcomes are limited to a relatively small time frame in these women's lives, you know, vis-a-vis their PCOS diagnosis. Uh, and there are, of course, other treatments for anovulation. Um, that said, if this procedure were to result in long-term reduction in their metabolic risk, um, it could have a, a major impact on their long-term health outcomes. Can you speak to that? And, and what do you think is the biologic plausibility of this device having that potential upside? I think that those things are possible. Certainly, some uh, metabolic changes have been seen in women that undergo laparoscopic ovarian drilling, 
Um, I don't think we have the sample size really to say much to that area yet. Um, I don't know that there would be any changes in things like insulin resistance after a procedure like this, but uh, you could very well see um, changes in androgen levels that might be important metabolically. I'd be really interested in that as a next step for the study. Absolutely. I hope that the trial internationally has been collecting some of those biomarkers. It'd be really interesting to take a look at, at them longitudinally. We are collecting those, but I'm much more interested in uh, the larger trial that we'll be doing that is multi-center in order to have a much larger sample size to, to look at the long-term changes associated with the procedure. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Hansen. It's fascinating work. We look forward to hearing more about uh, this device. Great. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to Fertility and Sterility On Air, live from the ASRM 2023 meeting, where we've been doing author interviews. We've been talking about posters. We've been talking about oral sessions. I think, Sarah, you're our first guest to talk about a video abstract, which I think you're going to hopefully paint a picture for the listener uh, without the benefit of video. Welcome to the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm Sarah Cromack. I'm the second year fellow at Northwestern. And I'm going to talk about our video presentation, which is the use of intramyometrial carboprost trimethamine, also known as hemabate, to assist with phygotype 2 fibroid resections. So, And I heard about this at the expo hall. People were talking about this before the video <laughs> even came out. I was like, tell me more. I'm interested. Did you do this as a fellow? Or is this a, something that someone was doing at Northwestern? I did. How, how did the idea come about? So the idea is all from Dr. Magni Malad, who is one of our amazing MIGS attendings at Northwestern. And he had read a few studies that came out in the past few years about intracervical hemabate, right? Either at the time, right before you took the fibroid out, or after you had shaved down that more submucosal portion before you attacked the intramural portion. But the problem with those studies was that people saw some pretty significant observable uterine contractions, which could obviously make you have difficult visibility during that time. And then it didn't get rid of the side effects that you would see with full-dose hemabate, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting. So in his mind, he said, why don't we dilute this down? And instead of injecting it in the cervix, why don't we just put it through a needle, right through the hysteroscope? We're using MyAssure at Northwestern put it right through the hysteroscope and inject it into the fibroid. So we've actually, I did this actually our whole year we've been doing it. He's been piloting this study. And initially we tried to inject it into the fibroid itself before we resected it. We found that did not work you as well. go into the muscle if you want it to didn't contract. work as well. So our breakthrough case, I would say, was this video where we had about a five centimeter FIGO2 fibroid. It's probably about two centimeters in the cavity and three centimeters intramural. What we did was with the MyAssure XL hysteroscope, we shaved down that submucosal portion, and then we inserted a needle, which is the sidekick from Boston Scientific, and used a dilute hemabate solution, which I think in our initial group, we used like three to five uh, micrograms per ml, and now we're using 10. And so we... And would you shave down the intracavitary portion exactly. first to create space for it to exactly. protrude? So we shaved that intracavitary portion down, then inserted the needle and we injected kind of like in a clock face around to three to four different areas, injecting anywhere from three to four mLs. And we injected right at the junction, essentially between where that myoma interface is and the endometrium. So really trying to get really just subendometrial, just about a few millimeters and injecting there. And is it 
obvious? Do you just actively see it protrude or do you have to like take the hysteroscope was, out, wait a couple of minutes and then like, oh, wow, it's there? It is was actually in these few cases that we've done, it's been obvious. Like we did not have to wait. And you'll see when you moderate the video session tomorrow, the, it just pops out of the cavity within about 30 seconds. And so you're as you actively shave it down, it continues to protrude from the cavity. So it... I mean, for FIGO2 fibroids, which we usually do not have as good of a mechanism to get out without waiting, you know, months or trying serial shavings going in and out of the cavity, I think it really could be super excellent. My mind was uh, actively thinking, I'm a resectoscope guy. I don't use the tissue mm, morcellators. Mm. And for FIGO2 fibroids, I think we have very good success rates with getting the intracavitary mm -hmm. and the intramyometrial portion of the fibroid out with just having a slightly different tool than a tissue morcellator. Mm -hmm. If you're a tissue morcellator person, you absolutely need more of that intramyometrial portion to come out towards you. If not, you're absolutely. kind of stuck. You absolutely. You fully resect. And not everybody is as comfortable with the resectoscope. And the problem you do run into, for example, with this fibroid, it was only about five millimeters between the serosal interface and where you're going to finish your myomectomy. So we found that with this, again, it was very easy to tell when we were done, as opposed to sometimes with that resectoscope, you do get that kind of char artifact and you can't see as well. You know what you guys need to do is you guys need to have a live ultrasound guided video observing the myometrial That's thickness the next behind step. the fibroid actively thickening and squeezing this fibroid out. If Absolutely. you measure a before injection thickness of what's left between fibroid capsule and serosa and then post injection, and if you can prove that it actually gets bigger and your margin of safety is greater, that is that's a game changer absolutely it's like we should all be using so, this there's so much we could do with this and you know the mechanism we're proposing right now or at least what dr malad's idea was is that it's not only creating some uterine contractions there in the myometrium but it may also just be that fluid going in this century hydrodissecting yeah. so i think it's really kind of a combination so it actually i think even be interesting to try without hemabate but just try saline yeah and see if that also works so the nice thing, too, is hopefully they're going to start coming out with new needles that are actually work with our, not like the resectoscope, but work with our hysteroscopes. You don't get any of that increased fluid deficit. But in our study, our fluid deficits were pretty minimal. I think it was about 850 across our, our cases that we've seen so far. And we're able to get these done in about 25, 30 minutes. I think the, for me, the, the test case, and I'm going to take this home and try this. I think this is exactly Absolutely. what this meeting for is like just coming up with what are other people doing that may be better mm -hmm. than what you're doing. In the cases that I struggle with, I've done a lot of FIGO3 fibroids with the resectoscope. Mm -hmm. You can only do FIGO3 fibroids with the resectoscope. Absolutely. But can you make a FIGO3 fibroid look like a FIGO2 um, and make your surgical dissection easier, reduce the morbidity, reduce the fluid deficit, shorten the operative Absolutely. time by using this hemabate technique? And I would probably say, yeah. I think you yeah. probably could. You could even try resectoscope a little bit on the top, then inject on those borders. And then let it come to you. Let it come to you. And you certainly can take the time and wait, but at least in these first few, we found you didn't have to wait so much. Really, the last portion of it, and you'll see this in the video, we wait, we do let the pressure down. Don't actually take the hysteroscope out of the cavity, but just let the pressure down. And maybe a small portion of that rind of the posterior portion came out, but otherwise... It really just came out without much having to wait. And the patient had, I think, a little bit of postoperative nausea, vomiting, but it resolved with antiemetics at home. And we had, we couldn't see any significant contractions during the time that would prevent our operation. Say the dilution you use it one more time for the listeners who are listening and want to try it. Absolutely. So our dilute, our final dilution that we have ended on is going to be 10 micrograms per ml. So each hemabate, if you guys know from obstetric hemorrhage, is 250 micrograms. 
So essentially, you just take that 250 and dilute it in 25 mLs. And so our pharmacy, as we're doing this as a pilot study, has been able to, they'll give it to us in a syringe, so a 30cc syringe with those 25 mLs. We haven't, I think, in any of our cases used all of it yet. We're using usually, depending on the fibroid size, somewhere between 8 to 20 mLs. Do you think there's an upper limit of dose that uh, you start to see more complications or side effects? Or do you think this is kind of the sweet spot from your... I think, you know, as if you're going under that 250 micrograms at least, we haven't seen a lot of side effects other than nausea, vomiting, which also could have just been anesthetic effect. But I wouldn't expect if, we, if you stay under that, 20, that 250 microgram dose to have more significant side effects than you would in just an obstetric hemorrhage situation, which is, again, is usually pretty self-limited to GI. So if we can save our patients having to come back for that second, third operation, and they can move much more quickly to embryo transfer, I mean, this could be huge with a medication that's so easily available to all of us. And not expensive. And not expensive. Absolutely. Uh, well, Sarah, I really do mean this. This is one of those meetings that light bulbs just kind of flicker on and off. And my my light bulb is flickered. I am excited to take this home and try it. And I will call Magdi and Absolutely. tell them how it went afterwards. Please, yes. Let us know how it goes. Dr. Malad, we've got to give him the credit for coming up with this awesome idea. And we've had some great cases this year. So thank you, Dr. Malad. And thank you to you, Sarah, for presenting your video and coming by the podcast to chat. Absolutely. Thanks, Pietro. Hi, welcome back to FNS On Air, live from the ASRM 2023 meeting from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm Pietro Bordeletto, co-host of the FNS On Air podcast. I'm joined with my co-host, Dr. Eve Feinberg. Hi, Eve. Hi, Pietro. Always a pleasure to be here with you. And I have our executive producer for the FNS podcast series, Dr. Adriana Wong. Hi, Adriana. Hi, everyone. We, it's nice to be live from the meeting because what happens at the meeting is you get to talk to people who kind of walk by and want to tell you about their research, but you also get to talk to people who they've been identified as doing really stellar research. And today we have Dr. Wael Saad Elbana, who is a reproductive endocrinologist from Egypt and one of the oral prize paper winners uh, who just came out from the prize paper session, presented his paper, and is here to tell you, uh, our listeners, about the paper. Dr. Albana, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Thank I you want... so much for this introduction. Yeah, And congratulations. Yeah. Uh, we, we still didn't know who's the winner, but we have been selected. I think we are 10 um, researchers have been selected to the uh, oral uh, presentation of the prize paper this year. We hope we could be uh, the finalists. <laughs> well, what's, not every, what's not all the time that we see prospective, double-blind, randomized trials in our yeah. field, and when we do, I think it yeah. kind of stands out as something important and helpful. And your paper is entitled... Platelet-rich plasma and colony-stimulating factor are non-superior to placebo in improving endometrial quality during frozen embryo ICSI cycles. Yes. Tell us a little bit about where the idea came from to do this study. Well, uh, that's, uh, that's the essence of the question and everything. Six years back, our patients coming from everywhere, from the Middle East, from Africa, expats, whatever, they were asking us questions from the patient's group, and that's becoming something, really. Uh, the social media is everything now. So people is coming to you telling you, we knew that there is some doctors or centers who are using PRP, using CSF, using many others. I, it's not the, uh, the core of my research, but there is other substance I can talk about. And we yesterday, it has been a very nice course. We were talking about immunologists and uh, genetists and lots of people who's talking about the recurrent implantation failure. And how I can show you papers from centers where people giving immunosuppressive, uh, huge immunosuppressive dosages to patients uh, just for the sake that they want to get clinical pregnancy rate and it's not an evidence-based. So back 
like six years before, people were asking these questions. So we had a moral and ethical question to our patients, and we need to have a strict criteria to what to tell them exactly. Because some groups of researchers, they might have seen something, but always the research was coming up with, it might be, it could be, it could be associated with. So we needed to put a strict criteria because we found lots of diversity, not a single route of administration of the substance. The patients are not good randomized. There was not a single protocol and everyone is giving his own thoughts. So we needed to, to just put a very strict criteria, patients from 20 to 40 years, no immunological, no positive consanguinity, no uh, chromosomal abnormalities, and the, the womb is not having any previous surgeries, especially myomectomies and others. Only we can accept cesarean section. And we excluded even the people with a, a scar defect. And then we put these patients uh, into 420 patients. They started, we started to ev- uh, investigate them. And we put these criteria, we dropped th- 30. We, came up, we stayed at 390. We randomized 130 in each arm, which is the PRP, which is the most used now. It's the fashion of medicine. Ocular medicine, cosmetology, dermatology, PRP. is like I know a patient who's coming telling me about my hair started to grow up when I got plus. I said, how many, how many months till you start to feel the effect? And it dropped back. So you come back after one year to, get, to take plasma. That's what we're going to see in this study. So um, one arm was PRP. Yeah. The other arm was CSF. CSF. Yeah. And the third arm? And the third arm, placebo saline. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we started. It goes like three cycles. We start the natural cycle. We come on day five after progesterone, after ovulation. And we take a sample, endometrial sampling. And our guidance, our criteria was the noise criteria, which is well known in, uh, in histopathology. We get a professor uh, from Cairo University to check that the histopathological uh, changes, and we take full ultrasound examination. Pulse-style artery Doppler, resistant index for uterine artery. We thought or hypothesized that it could go to reach the uterine artery. But we also see in the zones, which the essence of this study. We know, of course, the four zones of the endometrium, and above the endometrium, two millimeters, that's zone four. And then we go to zone three, which is the hyperechoic line. And then the hypoechoic layer between the hyperechoic and the endometrial cavity, that's zone three. And then zone four, which is the zone of endometrial lining or the cavity itself. So we try to see how the vessels will invade and how the vessels will enrich this area, uh, the substances. And we also have seen the thickness, the pattern, echogenic, non-echogenic. And we have take 3D volume with a histogram to see the voxels inside, the volume, real volume inside, and subs- subtracted to see the effect. And then to see the, for the first time, not only the clinical pregnancy rate and implantation rate, no, we have been going to the life birth rate. That's what we really wanted because that's will will end it up. We, we can give our patients a right, a right wording. And to and, clarify for a second, these are patients that are undergoing previously cryopreserved, untested embryo transfer? We, are, we, we, we freeze the old. So we start with the natural cycle. We take the biopsy. We take the, uh, the, the, the parameters of the ultrasound. And then we go to the second uh, cycle, which is we collect the embryos. We inject blastocyst. And some of the groups, we differentiate many groups in this study. One of the groups is PGS. We started even the PGS. They euploid embryo transfer with these substances. And then on the the other, then we freeze all, we go to the intervention cycle when the same 
after five days of progesterone, the first day when we give the progesterone, we start to inject one ml of plasma, one ml of uh, saline what, what whatsoever. And then uh, after five days, we take the same biopsies and everything. After two days, we put, uh, the day seven, we put the embryos. And then and we- the, And the injection is one single spot? Or are you injecting in different zones and different parts of the endometrial cavity? We actually flush, we, we flush, we go with the- Im- Not injection. Uh, yeah, we, we go flushing uh, through the Im- uh, embryo catheter mm-hmm. and then we flush it and we see it by ultrasound that is going- A wash, yeah. yeah. A, a wash. wash. Yeah, kind of wash, right, yep. right. Uh, because years back, there was people also doing this study, but on HCG. And they found out that this it was not also significant. And then we go and we see to analyze the person. What we found was really interesting. We have we haven't seen any change in any parameters. The clinical pregnancy rate, the live birth rate. There was no effect. The only effect was the huge vascularization these substances can do. And it reaches from we did a heat map. We see all the patients while they are in zone. What what zone they were. And when they got the substance, what zone they, they tend to come up and who was getting a negative effect, who's got a positive effect. With this heat map, we have seen statistically significant vascularization up to zone four in these substance, but is not affecting the clinical pregnancy rate at all. The most interesting, we have seen people which is, they were out of phase, they become in phase. People who were out of phase become in phase. That was no difference for us. But that was interesting for us. The people who were out of phase, most of the people were in phase. People who got out of phase and they were also non-echogenic. Like they didn't get the real vascularity or whatever on the ultrasound. And they got pregnant. Some of them, they got pregnant. And those are focusing in the next years. Because that goes with the hypothesis when people get pregnant in abdominal pregnancy and in ectopic pregnancy. In any places that you can place an embryo, there is something or there is an effect that we don't know. There's a wow effect or an X factor that we don't know. We are all searching for. That these kind of patients, when they put the embryo, the embryo just got attached. A even good, yeah. A good embryo finds a way. <laughs> finds a way, even right. to the momentum. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think we've said this before on the podcast, but even a good embryo will stick to drywall. But, <laughs> but, 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 but if you say the good embryo, euploid embryo, that was not the case because we have done the group on PGS group, recurrent implantation failure group, uh, small endometrium or thin endometrium group. But even the, when we injected euploid embryos, it was no difference. So I guess my question is, I mean, there is some effect of PRP that you're seeing. So you're seeing increased vascularity associated with this PRP wash. But if we're not seeing clinical outcomes as a result of that, then are we investigating or barking up the wrong tree in terms of looking at PRP in this context? Um, That's like if 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 you honestly speaking... I'm not happy with giving a substance that is going to do effect or minimal effect, but is not get, getting us the, the life birth rate, take a home baby. Because all, of course, I am with any substance that we can investigate and go through lots of ways to investigate it. But the thing is, we take years to prove back what is the right track. And, and, and that's, that goes with the thing is the validation of anything that we can come up with. So, for example, right now, people are investigating many ways, even the AI, but without validation of the algorithms that they are having. Other ways, you will find substance every day people are talking about. They can do some effect, but the thing is, is not giving us the quality or the receptivity or the, the, the clinical pregnancy rate. 
Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I think this is really interesting. If you guys have other comments, I want to open it up for that. But I think that negative studies, as we said again and again, are really important. And it's not just about finding that difference, but also I think understanding what may or may not work as well. Yeah, uh, and also I, I think we have an ethical thing that we have to do, and I, I encourage a lot ASRM because it's the only place that people listen to and just like say, that's it. So your guidance regarding especially recurrent implantation failures and many modalities, for example, um, people who are giving tacrolimus, people who are giving uh, these substances that could, or drugs that could have a negative effect on the patient. We cannot give tacrolimus and uh, cyclosporin for just a normal patient, just for the sake that we say we need more pregnancy outcome, and that's not proven. That's my opinion. You're exactly right. And we're so thankful that there are, uh, and negative is probably the wrong word, but studies that kind of disprove what we all thought to be yes. true. Um, yes. So thank you for thank you, thank you for presenting at ASRM. Thank you for stopping by the booth. And we hope to see the paper in FNS so we can talk about it on the FNS On Air podcast. To roast it. Yeah, we'll, we'll be happy. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. All right, we are back at ASRM 2023. This is Michael Simone, and I'm joined with... Molly Cornfield. And we have Dr. Marco Moanis here. And Dr. Moanis, please introduce yourself. Thank you so much. So basically, uh, my name is Marco Moanis, as you presented. I'm part of the Rejuvenating Fertility Center in New York. We recently opened a couple of years ago, actually three years ago, marks, uh, October 15 marks our three-year anniversary. And basically, we've been at this for the past three years. Congrats. Congrats on that. And your topic was very interesting. It's one that in our clinic, and I'm sure in many clinics around the country, around the world, are wondering, how can Elagolix be used in IVF, if possible, just given its drug, given its adverse effect profile and how low that is and how easy this is to take compared to other ones. So please, why don't you just kind of go over your talk and what that was about? Of course. So basically, a lot of our patients complain about how much medication costs, how much it's painful how much it's a burden on patients, right? And we always try to do something to help our patients during this process. It is already mentally, physically, emotionally a very consuming process. So in order for us to help our patients, we figured that why not use some medication that is not injectable, less expensive, and does not have a high side effect profile, right? Going through the data, we realized that Elagolix made the most sense because compared to other GnRH antagonists that are oral, it also, as I said, had the lowest side effect profile. We started initially during the pandemic. So during the pandemic, most patients did not want to come to clinics and also the ASRM recommended not to start any new uh, fertility uh, treatments or discontinue the ones that are already in process. So what we patented, actually not me, our team patented a home IVF kit that, was, that included the use of elagolics but as a vaginal use because we really wanted to maximize the effect of elagolics and we know that by you know, using it vaginally, it's probably gonna bypass the liver, it's gonna have a better effect, it has a stronger effect. So we decided to use it vaginally and it showed that it has so much suppression on the LH that we figured that let's go now and try to see if it's oral, it's a better, um, it's a better composition or a better uh, route to administer the medication. And by trial and error, we figured that the doses that we're using it also were a bit too high and we go, went down progressively until we reached the 50 milligram dose. And this is where we started giving it to patients at a 50 milligram or a quarter tablet every other day. And it, as we said in our study that we're going to talk about now, we, it has been shown to suppress LH without causing problems with the development of the follicles. So, and the safety of the or Elagolix has already been proven. 
when it comes to patients with endometriosis associated pain or patients even that are going through IVF cycles that are trying Elagolix prior like a uh, generation antagonist suppression for a prolonged period. I liked how you looked at LH levels uh, because when I thought about this project, I was like, the primary outcome of this has got to be premature ovulation before your retrieval. But uh, you're not going to be able to find that unless you have an enormous yeah. N because it's such a rare event in our clinic. So I, I love that you looked at the LH levels. Yeah, definitely. It was also a rare event in our clinic, even in both arms of the group. So we compared Elagalix versus Ganarelix and Cetratide. And in both groups, we only had one ovulatory event. So imagine if we hadn't looked into LH, we would not have been able to prove anything. But we looked at LH 24 hours post the intake of the medication and in a, another study that we're going to continue to publish as well and uh, it's an ongoing data process uh, we also looked at it 48 hours later and it still shows some kind of suppressions 48 hours later. Just protocol wise when was the timing of the elagolix when did the patients started in their cycles and uh, to be able to achieve this no, no ovulation event? Yeah, uh, full disclosure our clinic does gentle stimulation IVF so we're not doing um, conventional high dose IVF. Probably the dosage that we're using probably need to be upped a bit for conventional IVF, but um, in our clinic. So gentle IVF basically is a combination of oral and injectable medication. There's clomiphene citrate, letrozole, and a certain dose of gonadotropin can vary from 75 to 300 units daily. So patients are starting started on the medication as of day three. And once the follicles, and they're monitored, of course, just like any other cycle. And once the follicles reach a size, dominant follicle reaches a size of 13 millimeter or more, this is when we start the Elagolix every other day, a quarter tablet. And the comparison was the Elagolix quarter tablet every other day versus the Ganarelix or Cetratide injection on a daily basis. Assuming they were all HCG triggers, if they were all uh, minimal stimulation protocols. So 98%, I would say, of the, of the patients okay. were patients that were ACG trigger. I believe in the whole study we had um, maybe three or four patients that were Lupron trigger. Those are, there were two patients that were included in the study out of these that were um, donors that uh, the patient who wanted to do, so it was a, a known donor. And uh, the patient that wanted to recruit wanted to have a minimal stimulation of the donor as well. And so they all agreed to that protocol and we used. And she did the Lupron trigger because she still had a good number even with gentle stimulation. Were there any issues with the Lupron trigger after all that elagolix suppression? So it's kind of different from when you take the elagolix on a daily basis. When you take the elagolix on a daily basis, the effect kind of prolongs a bit more. And it stays and... It, it, it will have a suppression even after you stop it for a while. When you take it, it's really minimal. Quarter tablet every other day, this is like the lowest dose of Elagolix that has ever been prescribed. We did not note a problem with the Lupron trigger. However, we are in the process of also recruiting, seeing if more patients are doing the Lupron trigger to see if we get some data about that. It would be interesting to study specifically the trigger, but 98% of our patients were ACG trigger. And the ones that did the Lupron had good um, retrieval rate, good maturation rate, good blastocyst rate, and good diploidy rate. So it didn't change anything for them. But we did notice a bit of an increase in the LH surge post-trigger. But it was not significant. So, and they still got a good result. An increase in the surge, you mean in your post-trigger labs when you measured them, the LH Correct. was higher? Gotcha. It was lower in the oh, patients that lower. were taking the Elagolix sure. previously compared to the ones that were not, that were on Cetraline, just triggered. Okay, got it. Did any of the Elagolix patients have fresh transfers? All of the patients in the study that we have, that we have right now for the presentation, were all for frozen transfers. But we are currently looking into the fresh uh, embryo transfer cycles as well. It has not been shown to have any side effects for, like, when it comes to birth defects or anything like that. But it will be interested, interesting to look into whether or not this uh, has any effect on endometrial receptivity as well.
And for our audience, could you explain this was a retrospective and the end and all that stuff? Yes, of course. So this was a retrospective study. Uh, basically, as I said, we already had patented the use of Elagolix in the home IVF kit. And what we did is that uh, retrospectively, we looked at the patients that started taking all this Orlisa medication, uh, the Elagolix medication, and um, we reviewed the chart. We included patients that were less than 42 and had FSH of more than 15, uh, less than 15, sorry, at the beginning of uh, stimulation. And uh, yeah, it was basically retrospective. We have a total of 296 uh, patients that were included in the study the one that we presented um, yesterday, but currently in the study that we, we have much more patients that we are going to include in the uh, final manuscript. Exciting. I like this uh, study a lot. I think it's really promising because we're, a lot of us are thinking about using progestins mm -hmm. uh, to prevent premature ovulation during stimulation as a low-cost option, but then you can't do your fresh transfer. And so this would open up that door for fresh transfer. And I also didn't realize the cost difference uh, between Elagolix and um, using... Gamma. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually... The first time that someone brought it up was a patient uh, that told us, I mean, I've used this for ovulation suppression and endometriosis, and it's so cheap. Can I use it for cycle? And this is how it started initially a while back. If we did a very quick cost analysis, like not a real cost analysis study, and we, do, we just show the difference between the single tablet use or single use uh, medication for Elagolix versus single use of Generalix and Cetratide, and, you know, a quick calculation based on how many cycles you do in the C with, reported by the CDC in 2021. They had, I think, 470,000 cases of IVF. If you calculate that just based on that single medication that we're doing, it will cost patients $270 million less per year just by changing this medication. It's a huge difference. Again, this is not a cost analysis study, but it's just, you know, a thought. You're going to get a lot of drug manufacturers in bed. <laughs> so where do you see this going in the future? What are you guys doing next? So the next step, as I said, is we're going to look first at pregnancy rates and pregnancy rates and outcomes. Uh, we're going to look at fresh embryo transfer cycles with Elagolix. And we're also going to look at um, some other data when it comes to day three, because some patients, some people do day three as well. We're going to look at the data for that as well. We don't have it currently for this study. We've had blastocyst rates mainly. Great. And we're hoping that in the future, I mean, more and more uh, studies will be done about um, Elagolix or things that might help patients do this in a more comfortable way and an easier way. I know we tend to make sure we get the results right and we get there to the end in the, in the correct way, but we also want to try to help patients make it as safe and as easy for them as possible. Sure. On that note, were there any patients who reported any adverse events during their Elagolix administration? Uh, the, the side effects that were reported with Elagolix and other studies were not reported in our study because, again, the dose was very low. The 50 milligrams is really the quarter tablet doesn't do anything. Even with the Elagolix, um, uh, the, the, when they take it daily for suppression of ovulation and endometriosis pain or so, uh, the, the effect doesn't start before a couple of days of taking the medication. So you need to be on high dose for a while to have those effects. For our patients, I mean, some patients did report some, uh, some headaches and some uh, dizziness with the medication when they took it. But other than that, really no side effects from patients. And our patients have done, said nothing other than they loved it for the past uh, three years. Cool. Well, we're looking forward to reading the whole manuscript. Hopefully, <laughs> it'll end up in FNS. Hopefully, hopefully. We're looking forward to, forward to it soon as well. Congratulations on the work. Really appreciate you talking to us. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. I am joined today by Pietro Bortoletto and Bo Reds. Welcome, Bo. Thanks for having me. I'm a, actually a longtime listener. That's always great to hear. So I'm glad you listen, and we're really honored to have you with us today. You must have a long commute. Everyone who I hear listens to the podcast says they listen to it when they're stuck in traffic. 
guilty as charged. Yeah. <laughs> Although I hear that your colleague, Kate Scheuer, listens to the podcast when she walks her dog. <laughs> I, she has told me that as well. As long as they're listening, that's all that matters. I think, you know, exactly. This was created for people on the move. Um, not to say that it's a replacement for reading the journal or coming to the meetings, because absolutely we should be all reading the journal and coming to the meetings. But I think that the original idea behind the inception of the podcast was to help provide some educational material and food for thought during commutes or those times where we're otherwise occupied. So tell us a little bit, the title of your abstract is Blastocyst Formation Rates Comparing Ejaculated Sperm with or without the use of Zymont. So I think before we dive into what it is, um, tell me a little bit about what Zymont is. Sure. Well, uh, the Zymot is this microfluidic device, and it's currently used to help select sperm for use with IVF or assisted reproductive technologies. I think the idea is potentially reducing the amount of, of DNA fragmentation. Got it. So what was your hypothesis when starting to, when starting to do this study? Well, we, we wanted to see if there are differences in blastocyst formation rates uh, when, when using the Zymot in individuals who had higher sperm DNA fragmentation. And so I guess from the male factor perspective, you're worried about one, fertilization rates, but then we also wanted to see, well, is there a difference in, in how the embryo subsequently develops? Yeah, and I think that that ties in really nicely with an article that we reviewed I think just last month or earlier this month, looking at testicular sperm and looking at blastocyst development rates with frequent ejaculation. So I'm curious to see how you conducted the study and what you found and whether or not Zymot was helpful to identify better sperm that might then lead to better blastocyst formation rates. How how did you assess DNA fragmentation first? I feel like we always talk about DNA fragmentation as a hand-waving thing, but there's a bunch of different ways to get after it. Yep. So now, admittedly, I don't know the specifics of the test, but we we do have Jay Sandlow and Peter Dietrich, who are two male infertility specialists in our clinic, who will either indicate uh, a patient is a candidate uh, for this device. And we also have a number of our male patients who have an indication undergo sperm DNA fragmentation testing. Just so I'm clear, so in your clinic, you're you're discriminately using Zymot for those patients who you suspect or think have high DNA fragmentation. You're not just using Zymot on every single Exactly, yeah. Now there, we do offer it, and so there are there's always going to be some patients who use it just because they want to use everything available. Um, but it's not something we're recommending unless there's an indication, like if they're a smoker or high BMI, I think is another indication. And, and so, admittedly, I think the other potential confounder is the fact that the cost of doing sperm DNA fragmentation testing is actually pretty similar to the t- cost of doing Zymot. Sure is. It's a tricky part, right? Yeah. Should we just do it for everyone? What are the harms, potentially? Yeah. Or do you do this stepwise, pay for the test? If it's positive, then pay for the intervention? That would be the scientific way to do it, yeah. exactly. But not, not everyone from a cost and practicality standpoint wants to go in that direction. Yeah, so then tell me a little bit about the methods within this study. So this was a retrospective cohort study. Um, and so we were, I think we had a total of 495 patients in, our, in the two groups. Um, and again, we were comparing the group using Zymot who had an indication against males who did not use the Zymot. So that's kind of the short story. Okay. Yeah. And I think it would have been interesting actually to do males with Zymot who had an indication versus males with Zymot that 
didn't just wanted have to use it. Yeah, just wanted to mm-hmm. use it. So maybe that's a future abstract. So go on. I didn't mean to cut you off. So we, we divided essentially the patients into, into two groups based on whether the ejaculated sperm was processed with or without zymot. And so we labeled the groups, of course, as zymot and ejaculated. We did exclude uh, patients where we obtained sperm through testicular sperm aspiration or other surgical methods. We also excluded those using donor sperm. And then, again, for this particular study, samples that utilize Zymot either had elevated DNA fragmentation levels documented by a sperm DNA fragmentation test, or they had other indications such as smoking or high BMI. And then fertilization and subsequent embryo development were monitored using the Embryoscope time-lapse system and our blastus formation rates and ICSI fertilization rates were compared uh, using Wilcoxon rank sum tests. Yeah, so then you looked at blastus formation rate, and I think at one point you started to find it by age. Is that correct? So we tried to rule out the things that would affect embryo development from the female partner. And so we, we, we did look at age, BMI, FSH, and AMH uh, between uh, the female partners in each of the two groups, and we didn't find any differences because, of course, that would be a major confounder if there were differences in the female partners. And so what did you find? Did you see that there was better blastocyst development rate right, with the use of Zymot? Uh, well, no, we didn't. <laughs> um, we did find, actually, uh, statistically significantly lower fertilization rates in the Zymot group. And oh, so that's was, interesting. Yeah. So the, the sperm that was selected through the microfluidics led to a lower fertilization rate. But again, you have to keep in mind that sperm quality was objectively going to be poorer in, in that group. Fair. So, okay. Now, the interesting thing, though, is that despite this lower fertilization rate, which it was, it was 75% in the Zymoc group versus 83% in the ejaculated group, um, despite that, there were no differences in blastocyst formation rates. And so despite the lower fertilization rates, uh, the, the subsequent blastocyst formation rates were the same, which is about 50% in each group. What do you make of that? So I, I think that since there was no difference in the blastocyst formation rate when the Zymot system was used uh, for sperm selection, despite the significantly lower fertilization rate, uh, that, that there, there is potentially a use. And so clearly, as, as demonstrated by the worse fertilization rates, did it change your guys' practice in your clinic after you looked at this data? We haven't made big changes, but... Or you could spin it the other way. I mean, I think that there are two ways that you will look at these data. One is you could say, well, it doesn't really make a difference, so we're not going to use it. But the alternative way of looking at this is to say, gee, the blastocyst development rates were normalized, and so we exactly. didn't see a difference. That's, and so that's more the, the tact we actually took, is that despite this lower quality, the blastocyst formation rate remained comparable in the ejaculated group and the Zymoc group. Right, and so it's a so negative it's, finding, but it's not really a negative finding. Exactly, and, and there was actually a trend towards higher blastocyst formation rates when we increase. So we've, we've continued to monitor the data. And so I, it's not in the poster, but the trend has been, as we've included more and more patients, has been moving towards higher blastocyst formation rates, but it's not statistically significant yet. And so one, we, we, I mean, this is a very limited, small study. It's you know, less than 600 patients. I think as we get more data, we may see a benefit in, in terms of blastocyst formation rate because that's the way the data is trending currently. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting, and I think it really speaks to 
the idea that we need to continue to look at these things. So thank you for mm-hmm. coming on and sharing your work. And I, I think that one of the nice things about the podcast is we hope that it sparks continuation of your work so that you can come back next year <laughs> and tell us what you found. And I think it's just a jumpstart for other people to look at to gain some ideas and and do some good research so thank you and once it's published in fns we'll talk about it on the fns and air podcast as well (laughs) shameless plug by pietro thanks for having me thanks Thanks so much bo all right this is michael simone back from asrm 2023 and i'm joined with Molly Cornfield, and I have a guest today that I'm totally biased towards, one of my residents at OHSU, Sarah Phillips, and she's here to tell us about her abstract. Thanks for being here, Sarah. Can you give us a little summary of what you talked about? Sure, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, for our project, we were looking at um, the effect of fertility treatment on racial and ethnic disparities in adverse maternal outcomes. And while... Molly might be a little bit biased. I'll do credit to Sarah. This was actually a prize paper, uh, one of the prize paper possibilities, and you actually got the Resident in Training Award. Congratulations Thank for that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so why don't you kind of go through that abstract and tell us a little bit about what you found? Sure, yeah. We know that racial disparities exist in maternal outcomes. But we were looking specifically at the role um, and the effect of fertility treatment on those baseline population risks for maternal outcomes. Um, and what we found actually was that Adverse maternal outcomes at a baseline population level were really, really high um, for non-Hispanic, Black, and Indigenous populations in this country, as we can imagine. Um, and the effect of fertility treatment, so individuals who were in those populations who access fertility treatment, um, there was actually a, a, just a marginal effect um, on those adverse outcomes. And so their baseline population risk was so high, such that adding fertility treatment didn't really change those outcomes. But what we did see was that at a baseline population risk, um, individuals who are non-Hispanic, white um, and Asian individuals had a really low baseline population risk of adverse outcomes. Um, and then those of individuals who access fertility treatment actually had a significant, like a two-fold increase in adverse outcomes with fertility treatment. And can you just go over what are the adverse outcomes you were looking for? Yeah, so we used um, the National Vital Statistics data set, which is a national data set that encompasses all births and deaths in this country, um, which was really, really neat because we had 32 million births included in our study population, which is a very, very nationally representative study population. Um, but because we were using birth certificate data, we were kind of limited in the um, things that we could include in our adverse outcome composite score. And so we created a composite that looked at uterine rupture, maternal transfusion, admission to the ICU, and unplanned hysterectomy. And so to recap, you found that even though there's a baseline risk of having these adverse outcomes, even after fertility treatment, the adverse outcomes actually increased among non-Hispanic Blacks and other populations that were other minority populations? Correct, yes. We saw actually that they increased for all populations. Um, They increased the most for non-Hispanic White and Asian um, populations. But yes, the like the highest burden that we saw was in non-Hispanic Black um, and then Indigenous individuals in this country. Man, that sucks. We can never catch a break. <laughs> so um, That's why we're here to do the good that's work. That's why we're here, to hopefully figure this out eventually in the long run. So I'd love to know from your perspective, what do you think? Now well, let's just do reckless speculation, regard, disregarding the <laughs> research and what you did there. What do you think were the reasons for these outcomes actually increasing in their um, prevalence afterwards? 
Yeah, I think it's really hard to say. I think specifically for those minoritized populations, like, you know, it has a lot to do with systemic racism in this country and the, the way that um, fertility care is set up um, and lack of access, I think, was a big point as well. Um, specifically for our demographics, we saw that individuals from populations like non-Hispanic Black um, and Indigenous individuals had really, really low representation in fertility care, which means that they just couldn't access those types of services at the same rate as other populations in this country. So I think that's a big thing as well that we wanted to get across and is that um, we need to increase access in order to target those disparities as well. Thinking about your project is the people who are accessing fertility care often are the people with the most health right. resources. So I think if we actually were in a country where everyone had equal access to fertility care, would these outcomes be even worse? Would we be seeing even um, worse outcomes? Yeah. Um, or is it that the people who are accessing care uh, have the worst infertility diagnoses and it's actually infertility that may be driving some of these complications as well? Mm -hmm. Because you couldn't screen out, like, if they had fibroids or, you know, the type of fibroids they could have been, prior C-sections, all that right. stuff, right? Right, right, exactly. Interesting. So what are you going to do with this data? What do you think the next steps are? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think we would love to get a little further into the granularity of the data, exactly like you were saying, um, and so assessing out um, what is the effect of fertility treatment or infertility at baseline and how does that really play into disparities. Um, there's actually another data set, the California data set, that has really, really granular data, which would be very, very interesting to look at. I think in this project, we just wanted to have like all-encompassing data, and so we wanted to use a really, really large data set, the National Vital Statistics data set, to just assess if, like, if those ex disparities exist and what they look like, and then do another follow-up project, looking specifically at um, whether it's infertility that's driving those disparities or fertility treatment. What do you think it is? I think it's a mix of both. <laughs> Got it. What do you think it is? I think it's a lot. I think it's uh, biases. I think it's, yeah. you know, people coming in with probably worse um, expectations just given, you know, their history. Maybe they came to treatment late. Maybe they had all these other comorbidities. Um, obviously, physician um, biases we talked about and things of that nature. Yeah, unfortunately, it's so much goes into it that I'm always wondering, are we ever going to be able to tease all of right. it out? Right, yeah. But your research is a start, so much yeah. appreciated there. Thank you. You did great. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. <laughs>